So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. We've been going through the book of Genesis. We've gone through the first three chapters. Uh, We're in the fourth chapter today. And I'm trying to keep it brief because I know we have communion and we have fellowship meal afterwards. And when I say I'm trying to keep it brief, I actually mean I'm trying to keep it brief. (laughs) Not that that was barbed or anything, but... I want to back up a little bit. Uh, I want you to see a couple of things first that sets the context for where we're at in chapter 4. A couple of things out of chapter 3. Justin stole my thunder with him this morning. Remember in chapter 3 we have the fall of man, right? We have the fall. And we should remember that the fall affected everything. Um, It's very common in philosophy classes today to speak of uh, theodicy, which is the problem of evil. And what they'll say is, well... The Christian defense for the problem of evil is free will defense. That's what it's called. Why is there evil today? Because God gave man free will, and man used that free will to rebel and ushered in sin. And therefore, there is evil in the world today. And, of course, the the skeptical answer to that will be, well, that doesn't explain natural evil. That That may explain, you know, sinful people doing sinful acts to other people may explain moral evil. But what about natural evil? What about... Earthquakes and tsunamis and forest fires and tornadoes and hurricanes and all these natural disasters that also cause great suffering in the world. Surely you can't pin that. You can't pin that on man. But the truth of the matter is we certainly can, right? Yeah, we can. Natural evil even happens because of sin. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that works, but I do know this. I do know that the Bible tells us that man by man came death. Not by man came man's death. By man came death. I also know that the Bible says that creation groans today because of him who subjected it. We have subjected creation to sin. The animal life in in our environment doesn't work the way it originally uh, did. And not only that, but even the geological processes. Well, how how does that happen? How does that work? I don't know. I can't tell you the ins and outs of how. I don't know how, you know, how, how, how did Adam's sin, uh, you know, change the fundamental forces of nature or change the, you know, the fundamental nature of, you know, atomic mass. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is this. God's word tells me that that sin, that rebellion, didn't just affect humanity, but it affected the entire world. It affected the world that we live in. And the great news is this. The good news is that one day... Christ will redeem that. He'll even change that. Now, if we back up to Genesis 3.15, we see this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Sometimes this is called the proto-evangelion. This is the first mention or the first glimpse of the gospel. Evangelion is basically a, taking Greek through Latin, basically. Uh, taking the word evangelium, right, which comes from the Greek you, E-U means good, you, evangel, evangel means message, this is the good message, the good news, the, the proto-evangelium is the first time that we see in the scriptures the mention, the foreshadowing of Christ, the gospel. I want you to notice this down here in verse 21, we skip down, Genesis 3, 21, it says this, after this whole thing happened, after the fall, remember, Adam and Eve attempted to cover themselves up with Garments made of leaves, right? 
They made for themselves coverings. I want you to realize that is a very thinly veiled reference to your good works. And, and their good works could not cover up their sin. Your good works will never cover your sin. Okay? Any court of law, any justice, any judge would understand that. Hey, judge, I know I murdered that guy, but I've been doing some really good stuff since then. I fed the, I fed the poor. I've clothed some homeless people. Well, yeah, yeah, we, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? We're not, we're not putting you on trial for the good things you did. We're glad that you did those things. But the good things you did cannot erase the bad that you did, can they? No, they cannot. And you're going to have to have justice for those evil works that you've done. And that's exactly what God was showing. God gave them, he, the, the Bible says here in 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I believe, personally, it was a lamb. Can't prove that from the Scriptures, but that's what I believe. Uh, I know that's Paulology 101, but uh, I believe that's a foreshadowing. But I am saying this. I do know that it was an animal. It was blood sacrifice. God had shown them the price of your sin is blood. The sacrifice that I require is blood. It's not the fruit of the ground. It's not the fig leaves. It's blood. Okay? We've got to keep that in mind. That's the context, the setting for chapter 4. Okay? Let's go to chapter 4. Kind of fast forwarding here. <laughs> it says this, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's kind of a play on words because um, Cain actually sounds like the Hebrew word forgotten. I have gotten a man. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. By the way, Abel's name literally means vapor or quick. Kind of a foreshadowing of his life, wasn't it? Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that Cain brought first fruits. Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? That's a rhetorical question. God is telling Cain right off the bat, I have, I have no favoritism for one man over another. If you do what, what, uh, what Abel did, I will receive your offering the same way I received his. And by the way, a lot of um, Old Testament theologians think that the way that um, God received Abel's offering was by burning it up with divine fire. And the reason is because when it says he had regard for Abel, the same word can mean he burnt. He burnt the offering. That's possible. I don't know. But the long and short is this. We know that something happened. God respected and had regard for for Abel's offering and not for Cain's. And it was something that was so obvious that Cain could see that. Hey, God treated Abel and his offering differently than he treated me and my offering, and it made Cain angry. I want you to notice something about this. Cain was not sleeping in on Sunday morning. Cain brought an offering. Cain wasn't making arguments about the non-existence of God. 
Cain brought an offering too. And I'm going to say this, and I'm going to make my sermon, basically I'm going to weave this out to you. I believe many times us here in America, in the Christian church, we have decided to serve God in the manner of Cain. I'll serve God my way. I'll bring him my wants, not the way that he has prescribed for me. God has prescribed a certain way for us to approach him. He has prescribed a certain way for us to worship him. He has prescribed a certain way for us to serve him. And we in America, we are so solipsistic, we're so self-centered, we're so self-focused, we want to serve God the way I want to, and I think God should bless that. God, I've got an idea of how I'm going to serve you, and you're going to make me great. I'm going to serve you, and you're going to make me the next R.C. Sproul. I'm going to serve you in this manner, in my way, and you're going to bless me for it. And I'm going to tell you right now, from the very beginning of God's Word, He has shown us over and over, He will not do that. He owes no man anything, certainly not you. He does not owe Paul Wilson anything. We do not get to serve God at our leisure. I'll serve Him the way I want to, and think, somehow we have deluded ourselves into thinking, when we do that, God's really going to be pleased with it. I have news for you, and I don't think it's actually news for most of you, but I have news for you. A lot of times, God's service requires self-sacrifice, not self-exaltation. You know what? When Abel brought an offering, he brought his best. I want you to notice he brought his best to the Lord, and the Lord killed it. What did Cain do? I'll keep my best for myself. I'll still give God something. But I still get to keep my best. Why, why would he do that? Maybe he was scared God would kill it. I can remember at one time, you're going you're gonna to laugh at this, but this is true. I can remember at one time playing college football. And I'm bargaining with God in my mind, right? God, you're going to make me this NFL star. You're going to make me the star. Right? I'm a big, strong guy, fast guy. I'm, I'm a good athlete. You can do it. You're going to make me this star, and I'm going to use my fame to serve you. Here's the problem. I was also praying this prayer <laughs> night after night, and it was just discombobulating me. My prayer was, God, make me usable. God, make me usable. Make me usable. Make me usable for you. And you know what started happening? I started getting injured. I hadn't gotten injured before. Right? I'd always, I'd always been able to be the superstar. And all of a sudden, I cannot stay healthy. I blow out my ankle. I go through all the rehab. I finally get back on the field. I was on the field, I think, two weeks. Fight my way back into a, a starting spot. And guess what I do? I pop my elbow or pop my shoulder out. I go through the rehab. I start, it, it, it just happened time and again. I cannot figure out why can I not stay healthy. You know why? I finally, I finally read a passage in the Scripture that says, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Boy, did that hurt. It hit me like an arrow in the heart. Wait, God. It sounds like you're telling me I have to die to my own wants and wishes. God, it just feels like I'm dying inside, though. Yep. Know why? Because I was dying inside. That's why. You know why it felt like God was putting to death me because God was putting to death 
Me. I want you to die to your own selfish agenda. And that's the problem. We have a selfish agenda. Here's the great part. A lot of us have grown up around church, and so we know how to hide that. Or we know how to cover it over. I've got my own selfish agenda, but I can cover it over with good religious talk. Right? But I've still got a selfish agenda, and typically it's fame and power and glory. Right? I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be glorious. I'm going to be exalted. It's strange because that's basically what Lucifer said too. We do the exact same thing and expect God to bless it. What is Cain doing? That exact same thing. I'll serve you, God, but I'm going to serve you on my terms. Do you know what Hebrews says about Cain and Abel? Remember, Cain brought an offering. He wasn't sleeping in on Sunday morning. And yet Hebrews says of Cain, he was of the wicked one. And of Abel, he was righteous. We have the same desires. I want you to notice this. He's a first-generation sinner, okay? (laughs) Cain is one generation away. He's a first-generation sinner. His desires and our desires are no different. The sin nature did not get diluted as it passed down for generations. We have the same internal desires. We want to be famous. I want to be well-known. I want to be well-loved. I want to be powerful. I want to be rich. Right? Where do those desires come from? The same kind of a heart's posture. Back to this. So Abel brings the firstborn of his flock, his very best, and God kills it. Is that a sacrifice? If you bring your very best to God and he kills it, is that a sacrifice? That's a sacrifice. I promise this. You'll feel it. If you bring your very best to Christ and he kills it, you will feel it. What you may not feel is the character that's being built underneath of it. You may not feel the humility that he's building in you. You may not feel the virtue that Christ is working in you. See, he who began this good work in you, he is completing it. He is still working it. Whether you can feel it Whether you can sense it or not, he's still working. And sometimes the way that God works in us is by killing stuff. In fact, a lot of times the way that God works in us is by killing stuff. And typically it's our dreams, it's our desires. I have my own dream, God. (laughs) You're going to make me this famous athlete. And God says, you might have that dream, but that ain't my plan. That might be your plan, but that ain't my plan. Now the question is, Do I have the faith to believe that God's plan is best? Even if that requires my total obscurity and anonymity. Do I have that faith? Do you? The Lord had regard for Cain and or Abel and his offering, I'm sorry, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard, and Cain was very angry. His face fell, and the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, Will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Some versions say this, its desire is to have you, but you should rule over it. Sin has desire, and its desire is to swallow you up. The enemy comes not but to steal, kill, and destroy. Sin's desire for you is contrary to you. Sin's desire for you is to break and eat, swallow, destroy you. 
And yet you should rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Man, isn't this sin nature? Hey, buddy. Let's, let's go here and talk. Let's have a conference. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Murdered him. He slew him. Then the Lord said to Cain, notice that God only asks rhetorical questions. Cain is so dense and so deceived, he actually thinks God is asking a question looking for information. The omnipotent, omniscient ruler and creator of the universe is asking Cain for info. Right? Uh, Where is Abel, your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What do I look like, his nanny? You know, smart mouth, the creator of the universe. Not smart. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield you its strength. You'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. What? My punishment is greater than I can. You just killed a man. And you think it's too much that God says you're going to wander? The entirety of God's law in in Exodus and Leviticus is actually based on, in Latin, it's called lex talionis. Anybody know what that is? Talion. Talion is the Latin word, but basically what it means is this. It means exact retribution, exact retributive justice. Okay, what that means is this. You knock somebody's eye out, we're knocking yours out. It is exact justice. In fact, it is justice. If it's not, it's not just. You, Yep, you knock somebody's eye out, we're taking yours. You knock somebody's tooth out, we're taking yours. You steal somebody's sh- sheep, we're taking yours. You take someone's life, we're taking yours. You forfeited your own. Death penalty, that's unjust. No, if you don't have the death penalty, you don't have justice. Period. What should... What should Cain have experienced if we're just going to be real just? You took his life, you're done. And God says, I'm going to banish you. You're going to wander. It's too much, God. Welcome to modern society. Here we have the guy who's the perpetrator of the crime. Thinks he's a victim. He did the crime. It's too much, God. It's more than I can bear. And don't do the crime. I've had a conversation with a woman who cheated on her uh, her husband. And her husband left her because of that. And it broke up the family. And now, you know, her kids don't like her anymore. And she has a strained relationship. And she was basically giving me the sob story of how tough her life was. As if I should sit here and feel bad for her. You committed adultery. What did you think was going to happen? Well, my, my family broke apart and my kids hate me and I just don't know what... What, what do you think was going to happen? You're not the victim. You're the criminal. And the problem that I have with a lot of American theology is it does just that. Hey, you good-hearted, sweet person. You're a very good person on the inside. But life has done you unfair. Come to Jesus, he'll heal you. Well, that's true. Jesus is in the business of restoration. Yet that is true. 
Okay, but Jesus is not restoring you because you've been dealt an unfair hand. You have sinned as well. What do your sins deserve? They deserve death. My sin deserves death. It deserves to be punished. That does not make me the victim. That makes me the receiver of justice. Here's Cain. He's the victim. His punishment is too great. I cannot bear it, he says in verse 13. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. How did he know that? You know, we know the same thing intuitively. When we sin, we can actually sense God's displeasure with that. And until we repent of that sin, it feels to us like God's face is just hidden from us. Cain knew that intuitively. God didn't tell that to Cain. He knew that, just like you do. Just like when you get yourself into something that you know is sinful, and you do it anyway, you immediately feel there's something different between me and God. My sin, which is what the Scriptures say, has hidden him from me. My sin has disrupted my own relationship with Christ. And the Holy Spirit is now going to convict me of that. You know why? The Holy Spirit wants me to repent so that I can make right this relationship. That make sense? And you know what will happen to us? Instead of repenting, what do we want to do? I'll justify it. It wasn't that bad. Other people do a lot worse. Besides, I mean, it's really owed to me. Right? I mean, you know, I, I could get away with it anyway. I mean, other people would do worse in this situation. I mean, I, it wasn't that bad if you consider all the situations that I'm in. We want to justify our sin. Don't justify your sin. There's no justification for it. In the end, all justification falls flat. Now, I do like this the old saying, right? Um, was it John Hall that said this? We're black belts at justifying our own sin. That's so true. Boy, we can, we can nitpick any little thing on somebody else, can't we? Hey, brother, your theology's off by, you know, half an inch there. I better get you squared away. But when it comes to our own sin, well, that's, that's justifiable. That's okay. Don't get into my business. Don't meddle in my, my affairs. Behold, you've driven me away today, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. Even in, even in judgment, God is merciful. God had no reason to be merciful. He did not need to be merciful to Cain. He did not owe Cain anything. He did not owe Cain mercy. And even in his justice, in his judgment, he's merciful. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now think about that. Why in the world would anybody that found Cain want to attack him? I want you to think about what the world is consisting of right now. The entire earth is populated only by Adam and Eve's descendants. Right? Cain killed Abel. If you're one of those descendants, that's your brother. And the the Bible says he was a righteous man. Right? Probably kind, probably loving. Do people like people like that? Do you like your brother or your sister who is very kind and loving and reflects Christ, is righteous? Yeah, you will. If somebody messed with them, would you want to take vengeance? 
How about if there was no, if there wasn't even a government yet? There was no government yet, right? There's no policeman with a badge on the corner, right? Nobody's coming around collecting taxes. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. I mean, April's coming, man. I <laughs> just get ready to hurt. No, there's no government. If somebody killed your beloved brother, do you think you'd take vengeance? Yeah. And Cain knew it. I just killed Abel. And everybody on the earth is related to Abel. Abel is their cousin. Abel is their brother. Right? Abel is, Abel is this guy who is well-loved and part of the family. And they're going to take vengeance, and he knows it. He's killed it. He wants it to be secret and covered up. That sounds just like our sin. And instead, God brings it out in the open and says, uh, it's not covered. You think this is secret? I can hear his blood crying to me from the ground. You think nobody knows where he's at? I don't know where he's at. Am I my brother's keeper? How am I supposed to keep track of him? What's Cain going to do? Probably a lot like Joseph, right? We don't know what happened to him. Probably lions killed him or something. I'm sure in his mind, that's the scenario, right? And instead, God goes, you haven't gotten away with it. I can hear his blood crying from the ground. And Cain now is scared. Oh, my gosh. You know what he's scared of? This is, this is the heart of unbelief. He's not sad that he did the sin. There's no remorse. He's not upset that he killed a man. You took someone's life. Would you think a little bit of remorse there? No. What is he, what is he scared of? He's scared of getting caught. I'm not scared of... I'm, there's no remorse for the sin. He just doesn't want to be caught in it. Oh, now I'm going to have to bear the punishment for myself. I can't do that. Whew, that's, that's, I don't know. That's going to be rough. Why didn't he just fall down and repent? Why didn't he say, yeah, I'm guilty? He knows God knows he's guilty. He knows he's not hidden. Brothers and sisters, here's the whole reason I'm saying that. It should be the same thing in our life today. When the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, you have sinned, instead of us pretending like we can't hear his voice, we do that. I can't hear it, I can't hear it, I don't know, it's justified. We justify our sin. Instead of just breaking down and saying, I'm guilty. And I'm sorry. And I don't like that part of me. And I want you to kill that part of me. I want you to change that part of me. Instead, we love our sin. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. That is the exact opposite place you need to go. When you have sinned, you should hightail it back to the cross. Back to the presence of the Lord. What happens when you flee like Cain did? I'm, I'm going to get away from God. You know what happens? You start yourself down a path. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You're now suppressing the truth so that you can hold on to the sin you love. Rather than repenting of that sin you love so that you can hold on to the truth. Cain did exactly what he should not have done. He fled from God's presence. If God told you, I'll put a mark on you so people don't kill you, where should you go? Stay with God. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod. By the way, Nod literally means wandering or wanderer. So when Cain said, I'm going to be a wanderer on the earth, and then he went to the land of Nod, that's exactly what that means. 
He went to a place he did not know. Why? So he could flee from the presence of God. Why? Because he didn't want to repent from his sin. Folks, the, the implications here could not be more clear to us. We will do the same thing. I did that as an agnostic. I grew up. I, my mom had been diligent to try to teach me about the Lord, about the Scriptures. But I didn't want that. I wanted my own sin, and so I started wandering. I started wandering and checking it out. I want to wander myself into this, this place where I don't have to feel conviction, this place where I don't have to feel... I don't have to feel like I'm being judged for the sin that I do. I hear that so often. I just don't like Christians because they're judgmental. <laughs> they're not. You don't like being around Christians because you have sin in your life and you know it will be found out. That's where I was. Settled in the land of Nod. There's the story of the backslider in three verses. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. How many? Ooh, depravity's getting good, man. You don't have to go very far to see the depths of human depravity. We're at Lamech, and he's got two wives. Hey, one's not enough. That's another good-looking girl. I'll have her, too. Nothing depraved about that, I'm sure. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah. The name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. And he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Like Jubilee. Zillah also born Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man just for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Here's the first gangster rapper. Lamech. Look at me, man. You look at me, girls. I'm bad. Somebody does me wrong, I'll kill them. I'll show them who's bad around here. I'll show them who's strong and who has power. You think that's a big deal? Cain was going to be avenged sevenfold. I'll avenge seventy-sevenfold. Oh, yeah, you're one bad dude, aren't you? Got news for you, pal. You're still dust. You're not nearly as bad and big and tough and strong as you think you are. You're still dust. What kind of violent depravity do we have? By the way, this is the first record of poetry in the Scriptures. And what does it record? The depravity of man. The first record of poetry in the Scriptures records the depravity of man. I think that should be instructive to us. Left to our own devices, we will not be good and get better, which is basically the thesis of all humanism, right? Hey, left to our own devices, we're good people, and we'll make a great society, and one day we'll live in utopia. No, we won't. We will take a society, and we will mar it, and we will oppress people because we can, and we will put other people down, and we will step on people, and we will keep the riches for ourselves, and we will have a society that is absolutely dystopian where you have a small number of individuals that have all the wealth and all the power and everybody else gets to share in the misery. That's what we will have. And we've proven that, by the way. Uh, more people were killed by their government in the last 100 years than all of recorded human history. 
case you were wondering. More people were killed by communism, by the way, in the last 100 years than all the rest of recorded history. That's pretty impressive. Two biggest killers in history so far, communism and Islam. Although the Roman Catholic Church, they've got big numbers too. Anyway, the point is this. We've got poetry here, and it records our depravity, violent depravity. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And my favorite verse. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Finally, divine worship appears. I think that's... um, I think that's very instructive. I think it's very important, and here's why. We don't have any record of Adam and Eve worshiping God. They walked with him in the cool of the day. He gave them only one command, and they were not scared at all to break it. You know why? They'd become familiar with God. Don't get me wrong. I, I understand what people mean when they say, you know, uh, God, you know, Jesus is my brother. He's my best friend, right? I am the friend of God. Yeah. But there's a familiarity with God that we can have that inclines our heart to sin. You know why? Because as we get more and more familiar, we want to forget the fear of the Lord. We want to forget this this man, this person, this being that we are uh, worshiping. He's not just our friend. He's the creator of the universe. And he can snuff our life out at the blink of an eye. And he's just to do so. We forget that. Maybe that's why Paul said we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's not just with love, joy, and, you know, good feelings. It's also with fear and trembling. Both of those must be part of our worship. Worship comes from the word, comes from worth, worth Ship, what you ascribe worth to. That's what worship means. Worship does not mean slow songs. Okay? When the rich young ruler came and fell down and worshiped Jesus, he did not fall down and start singing slow songs to Jesus. He was ascribing worth to Christ. He was saying, This man, Christ, is worth more than my own dignity. And so he fell down and he worshiped it. You don't fall down if you're the ruler. And yet he fell down and worshiped Christ. He he gave worth to him. Our worship, our worship should not just be about the love that we have for Christ. We obviously we have love for Christ. Obviously. And that should permeate our worship. And I'm not saying it shouldn't. However, there is another point that should permeate our worship as well, and that is fear and awe. This is not just some just any other being that we're worshiping. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who holds the power to do anything he pleases and no man can oppose his will. I mean, when we get familiar, that's what Adam and Eve did, when we get familiar, it becomes very easy for us to just let ourselves slide into sin because you know what we say? Oh, God's my friend and he'll overlook it. No, there should be a fear and a reverence that taints our worship, if you will. It's not a good word. It permeates our worship, if you will colors our worship and that should be the awe that we have for him 
the fear, the reverence, the respect that we have for him. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of my sacrifice, just like Abel. And he's also worthy of my sacrifice of sin. I know that sounds strange, but we think of it in that term. Oh, man, I don't know if I want to give up this sin. I really love it. Okay, well, then sacrifice it. Put it to death. Mortify it. That's what it means. Sin must be sacrificed too. You have a sin that you love. I have sins that I love. My flesh loves them. And yet the Spirit of Christ in me hates them and wants them to be put to death and wants them to be sacrificed at the foot of that cross. Why? That I might know Him more. That I might become more like Him. That I might reflect Him more perfectly in a lost and dying world. That His Son might be exalted. Not me. Not that I might be exalted more. That His Son might be exalted through my life. That's the message of the Gospel. That's the hope. And we should hear it clearly. We should hear it clearly not just out of Ephesians and out of Romans, but we should hear it clearly right here out of Genesis. It was clear in the beginning and it hasn't changed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we ask, make us like that righteous Abel. The Father, that we bring you our very, very best. Our first, not what's left over, not just a little bit on the side, not just a tip here and there, but that we bring you our best. We bring you the best of our energies, the best of our money, the best of our time, the best of our abilities, that we give you the best of what we have because you're worthy of it. I ask that we could be a people like that, Lord, that our church would be known as a people like that. I thank you, Lord, that you're drawing us to yourself, making us more like you, that you challenge us to be more like you. I thank you for it, Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray. And all God's people said...